Hi guys, this is Psych Teacher John. I think last time we talked about conformity, so I think this time we should talk a little bit about obedience. So there are kind of two big camps on this. One is kind of the uh, authoritarian camp. So let me say it this way. So people believe dispositional factors are huge. So what they're thinking here is that basically there are some people that tend to obey way more than others. So a particular personality type called the authoritarian personality, you know, that seems in some studies to go along well with obedience. So what is this belief, this idea? So you believe, you know, completely in authority. You believe there's a set hierarchy. Those above you, you never challenge. Your, your job is to do, not to question, okay? Those beneath you, they're so different. The gap is so big that you think they're basically subhuman, okay? So, you know, horrific examples of this, when they talk about World War II and Nazis, and the thinking was is that that sort of belief came from or was followed by people with authoritarian personalities, okay? But at the same time, situational factors have been shown to be huge. So on the other side, when you talk about situational factors, of course, the most telling experiment is definitely the Milgram experiment. So what Milgram did was he went out, he got a bunch of people, all walks of life. And what ended up happening was you took these ordinary people, you, you had an authority figure, the experimenter, who would come in. So imagine you are the participant. So you come into the study. Um, Milgram or the experimenter sits there and says, hey, um, you go sit over there, you're going to be the teacher. And then the person next to you, they point to them and say, you're going to be the student. So the student goes to the other side. Now you can't see them anymore, but you saw them when you came in, okay? And basically it's a learning exercise. You're told that every time the student messes up to help them, you need to deliver a slight electric shock. So you push a button, gives them a little bit of a shock, okay? But you can see on the dial that it has different, you know, markings on it. And there's a range on there that's actually marked dangerous, okay? But anyway, regardless, you, you, you follow the instructions, the, the student keeps messing up, you shock them. After a certain number of trials, you're told to raise the intensity of the shock. So eventually you're getting to a point where you can hear, right, mm -hmm. the student sitting there going, ow, no, I, I don't like that. You know, I don't remember the exact verbiage, but at some point it becomes pretty extreme. So as you're cranking it up, you're hearing things like, uh, okay, this is too much. The experiment's gone too far, like you need to let me out. Okay, um, but apparently the experimenter says, no, keep doing it. You keep cranking it. At some point you hear them scream. Uh, I believe at one point, I'm not kidding, there was something like, my heart, my heart. And then afterwards, uh, you basically hear silence. Okay, uh, the truth is no one's getting shocked. But it just seems ridiculous that, you know, people are screaming these horrific things. And yet a lot of the participants, right, were actually going all the way through and cranking up to the highest level. You know, at one point though, there was some social referencing. Participant actually looked to the experimenter and said, should I really be doing this? And the experimenter's like, yeah, 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 crank it. It's for the sake of science. So that's not also to say that the people that went all the way to the highest level, that um, they felt good about it. A lot of times they were stressed out. Some of them literally were sweating. Uh, they didn't want to do it, but they went along anyway. So the logic is if these are quote, normal people, why are they doing this? And why are they doing this just because some experimenters telling them keep cranking it when they can obviously hear that the person on the other side literally screaming in pain. They've tried to propose a number of factors. By the way, if you want the numbers on this, um, I think it's something like roughly 65%. So roughly 65% of the participants actually took it to the highest level, gave them like the highest level shock possible. Okay. Um, that's also to say though that even though 65% basically went all the way, roughly 35% were like, no, I don't think so. Okay, but the question is for that two thirds, why did they take it all the way? So one explanation that Milgram thought of was the fact that some of the burden of responsibility isn't really on them. 
because in some sense the the participants were thinking something like okay i'm not the one delivering the shock i don't like doing this but it's what i'm told to do it's the experimenter that's shocking you okay and that sort of thinking you know it's this idea of the agent of the authority figure the authority figure is responsible for shocking you you're the agent all you're doing is doing what you're told okay Another factor that came in was um, physical proximity and like um, seeing the effects of what you do. So, you know, follows common sense, right? If the person's right next to you and you're shocking them, it, that's harder to do than if you can't see them. In fact, to test that, Milgram ran another version where he did the same thing, and this is going to sound even more bizarre, but the student sat right next to the teacher. And in fact, the teacher wore this, quote, insulating glove. I mean, the glove really didn't do anything, but they were told it was insulating. And so they were supposed to take the hand of the student and push down on the button that would actually shock them. Can you imagine that? You, they're actually pulling out the student right next to you. You're the teacher. When they mess up, you take your hand and sometimes forcefully you'd push their hand down with your hand. Okay. In that version, only 30% went all the way. Still kind of amazing that 30% went all the way. So proximity, uh, seeing the effects of what you do has a dramatic effect. Another thing was this factor of dehumanization. So. In dehumanization, it kind of goes both ways. One thing was you as a teacher, you kind of dehumanized the student because you didn't think of the student as Bob or Sue. You thought of them as like the subject, the thing that needs to be shocked, you know, things like that. So you make them literally less human. So it's easier to do it. At the same time, you kind of dehumanize yourself. You don't sit there and think, am I doing this? Am I really hurting this person? Am I delivering a shock? Am, I'm, am I the reason why they're screaming? No, you don't do that. You actually sit there and think, okay, I'm just doing the process. I'm not even gonna think about anything. Just push button, push button, push button, push button, like you're a machine, okay? Another interesting factor, of course, is this whole premise of the authority figure. So one is obviously if you trust and like the authority figure, you're more likely to go along. But at the same time, the authority figure doesn't just represent that one person. That The authority figure in some instances represents the institution. So what Milgram thought was for a lot of these participants, the experimenter wasn't just a person. The experimenter represented like science, right? Like, like the, the forward progress of science depended on people like the experimenter. So in some sense, if you defy the experimenter, you're just defying the progress of science. I'm not kidding, okay? Now that might be sort of an extreme version, but you get the idea, right? So if you challenge an authority figure, like the teacher at school or the police officer, you're not just challenging that person, you're challenging like that institution, right? Like the educational system, law enforcement system in general, etc. One last factor that, you know, was kind of obviously an experiment, but has been shown in other studies to be, I guess, effective at bringing about obedience is this incremental thing where basically what you're doing is it's like from the door technique, effectively. What you're doing is you're getting them to comply to a small thing that's reasonable and very slowly, very gradually, you're amping it up. Okay. In the experiment, that was kind of more transparent. It's you, you press the button to get a small shock, then you crank it up to a higher intensity, give them a quote, bigger shock and then crank it up even more, all the way up to like really dangerous. Uh, another version of this, just so we could talk more about these situational factors, is the really famous um, Zimbardo prison study. That's actually the Stanford prison study. So again, two lines of thinking. One line of thinking was, it's the people. So you get a certain sort of person that wants to be a prison guard, and you get a certain sort of person that ends up being a prisoner. And the thinking was, the reason why the guards, at least in these old institutions, interacted so badly with the prisoners uh, was that's what they're like their dispositions are as such okay but again the argument was maybe it's more situational so they took a bunch of college students and just told them okay you're going to be a guard you're going to be a prisoner 
do whatever you want. There are very few rules. They can just do whatever they wanted. And the roles themselves seem to take on a life of their own. So what's happening was the situation. Because they were given these positions, they started emulating what you would actually see in real life situations, like actual prisons. Students that were guards became sort of ruthless and started punishing the prisoners unnecessarily. And the prisoners started hating the guards. And opportunities would start to revolt or act against the guard. Luckily, the experimenter saw what was going on and just shut it down. One theory that kind of tries to explain some of this and like obedience and how it works is um, something called social impact. So social impact theory. And I think that's uh, Latane's theory. But basically the idea is you have all these social factors influencing you, people. And they're kind of like light bulbs. So the more light bulbs there are, the more people, right, looking at you, the closer they are. So if they're right next to you and also the brighter they are meaning how much you care about their opinion or their status or power or whatever it is, right? So like light bulbs, the more of these factors you have trying to influence you, the more likely you are to obey, okay? Um, just as a side note, it kind of goes both ways in the sense that like, um, if there were more recipients of that social pressure or attention, then it kind of diffuses. So what I mean is, imagine you're on stage and like no one's watching you. It's not a lot of social pressure, not many light bulbs. But now you have a big audience. So the bigger the audience gets, the more light bulbs there are, the more pressure you have. So maybe the more stage fright. Well, if it's just you, you know, that can be really stressful. But if you're there with your acting troupe, so you have like five or 10 other people with you, then you kind of feel like some of that pressure has been relieved, right? Because there are other people there to sort of share your burden. Anyway, that was a summary on obedience. A lot of interesting things there, but um, since some of my students are gonna take soon, I wanna just push on and look at some other topics. But uh, please let me know, you can always revisit this or talk about things in more detail. So I hope that helped and I'll see you guys soon.